All right. Good. Today is a good day. I'll see you. Um, I'll uh, introduce myself in our language so you can hear a little bit of our word from our people. Osiem nishtilicha, nishtilicha siem, genuate kunchquela kunsatia, squechel siem nishtilicha, chioktin sinasnat, chileit sin at usaina chileitula osiem, dahadipshuch, the yayala bethla, the suquamish, dahadipshuch, Atsil Talbuts, the Suquamish, Aisla, Ossiem, Siab. Yisin Techel Sohela, Siem, Omasi. I'm Chiokton from Saanich, southern tip of Vancouver Island. We're Coast Salish people. We're the people of the Salish Sea. And, uh, and I'm happy to be here in solidarity with Stony Chief Sticks family. And to stand in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, with Indigenous Lives Matter, that our time for change is now, our time to come together for justice in this world, the way that this colonial government here in what they call the United States treats black people, treats Indigenous people, the way that their police abuse us, the era needs to be behind us. And I believe you know that. And today is an honor to see your faces here, to feel your spirits here, that we know that you're standing with us. Because there have been many years when nobody has stood with our people. On July 3rd, 2020, one year after the shooting, I went to Stoney's memorial ceremony. It was held in the exact spot Stoney died. It was strange being back there, looking through the lens I have now. I walked over to the place my family was standing when it happened. It was much closer to the incident than I remember. I stood at the spot Stoney was killed. I tried to reenact some of the events to see if, I don't know, maybe I was missing something. It was a powerful scene. So many people showed up in support for Stoney's family, for Stoney himself, and most of all, for justice. On the evening of August 13th, 2020, I got a message saying they'd released the report. Polsbo Police Department had made a determination on whether or not Officer Keller had violated department policy. The logistics went like this. Chief Schoonmaker had hired an independent agency called Public Safety Training, or PST, to do a fact-finding mission. PST would re-interview the officers involved and weigh other evidence. The agency presented their findings to a committee made up of four law enforcement officers and one public citizen. The committee would present their findings to Chief Schoonmaker and he would make a determination based on their recommendations. Thirteen months after the shooting, after the criminal investigation, the prosecutorial decision, 
an independent fact-finding mission, a use of force committee, Polsbo Police Chief Dan Schoonmaker weighed the evidence and concluded, quote, After my evaluation of all documentation, both criminal and administrative, I concur with the panel and find that the actions of Officer Keller were within department policy. This report has revealed what, to me, really shatters any belief that anyone working in law enforcement has anyone but their own best interests in mind. If you thought anything before this seemed conspiratorial or coincidental or I was looking too deep at some of this stuff, this report is as clear as it gets that this is a complete and total conspiracy to exonerate Officer Keller from any liability, whether criminal or civil, or even any minor discipline within the agency. Some highly disturbing facts were revealed in the report. Between January 2017 and December 2019, Polsbo PD made 1,018 arrests. Of those arrests, Officer Keller was responsible for 228, or 22% of them. This is a staggering number. Out of roughly 18 officers, one person accounts for almost one quarter of the arrests. From January 2017 through July 2020, Polsbo police officers have used force 56 times, accounting for 21% of these uses of force. Officer Craig Keller. While shocking, these numbers aren't even the worst of it. Ultimately, what this whole case comes down to is if Officer Keller's actions were considered reasonable. The policy says, Officers shall use only that amount of force that reasonably appears necessary, given the facts and circumstances perceived by the officer at the time of the event, to accomplish a legitimate law enforcement purpose. The reasonableness of force will be judged from the perspective of a reasonable officer on the scene at the time of the incident. By this metric, the other officers involved are in a unique position to testify to the reasonableness of Officer Keller's use of force. And their testimony is damning. Officer Lom states, quote, So I initially did go to grab my gun, and then the second thought, the thought right after that, came to my, I never drew my, my gun. The next thought was, there's way too many people here. I can't shoot him, plus where Keller was, to me. I was not going to have a clean shot. I thought, okay, the next best thing is a taser. Then, I reached around for the taser, and I don't even remember even lifting the, the safety holder for the taser itself when I heard the two shots. He goes on to say, quote, To me, there was no way to physically engage him to do anything. You know, initially, like I said, my... The firearm was the first thing. I realized I can't do that. You know, it's just, it's too much of a risk here for me, you know, where I was standing. So I went to the taser, which I, I guess, kind of thinking back, that probably would have been, it probably would have been within range. This reasonable officer is saying the taser is the best option. Based on everything I've read, everything I've seen and heard, I think Officer Sangill's account is the most accurate. He says, quote, 
I was getting a witness's name and contact number and that type of information from him. And then that's when I went back to Officer Keller, and he was already closing in. Officer Keller tries to go hands-on, so he grabs Chief Stick, and I think he just tries to get his hands behind his back, or, I mean, I don't think the intent was even to put handcuffs on him or to arrest him. His hands were in his pockets, and so, I mean, I was concerned. He turns around and he starts, he faces towards us, and he's got a screwdriver in his hand. It's presented in front of him. It was upwards. It was facing up. He wasn't trying to run away from us, but he was trying to get away from us by, like, I guess, from us making contact with him. Like, physical contact with him, because, I mean, if that were to have been the case, he would have had the opportunity to actually run away. He'd created so much distance, he could have booked it, but he turned and faced us and presented the screwdriver. It was presented like in the midpoint of his body. I initially went for my firearm. I believe I made it to low ready before I realized that there was a lot of people around me and screaming kids. I mean, I was spooked, and I was afraid that if I were to need to use my firearm, that I would risk collateral damage, which is people around me. I reholstered my firearm, went for my taser, and by the time I had my taser out, I mean, he was already shot. I believe Chief Stick had gestured and lunged forward, closing that distance, and that was perceived by Officer Keller as a serious bodily injury or lethal behavior that warranted for that use of force. It happened so quick. I mean, it wasn't There was a lot going on. It doesn't take much to see that Officer Sangill had some misgivings about Officer Keller's reaction. He thought it would be nuts to risk the lives of civilians by shooting into the crowd. Officer Sangill and Officer Lom assessed the scene and made reasonable, calculated decisions, independently of each other, to draw their tasers instead of their firearms. As for the other two officers involved, their stories are less factual. Detective Wheeler says, quote, There's a guy, and he's focused on Officer Keller. I have no idea if he even saw me. I don't know if he even knew I was there. I have no clue. He goes on to say, quote, I hear Officer Keller tell him, Show me your hands, show me your hands. End quote. According to the body cam video, these statements were never actually uttered by Officer Keller. Continuing, quote, I see Chief Stick turn like this to his right, and I hear him again, show me your hands, end quote. Again, these words were never actually spoken. Quote, as I stepped around, I hear screwdriver, or what I believe I'm hearing screwdriver, and Officer Keller grabs Chief Stick's left arm, but I grab... Chief Stick's right arm. That was when Chief Stick tried to stab Officer Keller, or at least lunge at him with that right arm, which I have a hold of. Chief Stick was able to lunge again, and Officer Keller let go and and backed off, and he missed. I still had his arm at that point. He lunged twice, or made that motion twice. End quote. Now, here is another area I have an issue with. First, I will say that the body cam evidence does not support this claim. There's a total of one second where the camera falls to the ground that you can't see what's happening. However, 
When the camera hits the ground, you can clearly see Detective Wheeler behind Officer Keller, holding Officer Keller's right arm. But let's say it did happen. Detective Lee Wheeler says he's holding Stoney's arm, the arm attached to the hand with the screwdriver in it. Meanwhile, Stoney's lunging and stabbing at Officer Keller. I just can't wrap my mind around how it's physically possible to lunge and stab at someone while someone else is holding your arm. I should mention, too, Detective Wheeler's size. In his own words, quote, I'm already a big guy, so that kind of works against me in a lot of scenarios where people are already intimidated, and they think I'm just going to be this big bull and rush in and take care of them. End quote. So this bull of a man has Stoney's arm. Somehow Stoney is lunging and stabbing with a bull attached to his arm. Continuing Detective Wheeler's statement, he says of Stoney, quote, He turns and he gets in a, I'm going to call it a wrestling stance, a squatted stance, and he's got his hand out and he's motioning like, come on, end quote. Again, this is not corroborated by any of the other officers or witnesses. Wheeler then states, quote, I heard another shot and I saw his arms go down. I saw the screwdriver that was in his right hand fall down to the, to the ground, end quote. Of course, we know the screwdriver ended up 20 feet behind Stoney, so while this may have happened, taken with the rest of this statement, it also sounds made up. The other reasonable officers made distinctions on which weapons they drew and why. Detective Wheeler admits in this report to only having access to his gun. He had not been carrying a baton, pepper spray, nor his taser. Despite having access to his firearm, he did not choose to draw it. Wheeler concludes by saying, quote, He was definitely in attack mode. He had every opportunity to continue running away. Once I fell and once Officer Keller had backed off and Chief Stick ran toward the bathrooms, he had every opportunity to run. There was no other law enforcement officers that I at least remember or seen that would have blocked the way. He would have continued to run. It's clear that there's an artificial nefariousness linked to each of Stoney's actions. Consider the possibility that Stoney was complying with officers' commands. Maybe he just didn't want to be manhandled. He turned back toward the officers because he wasn't running away. He pulled the screwdriver out because Officer Keller told him to take his hands out of his pockets, and he happened to have a screwdriver in his hands. The actions Stonechild took in those 13 seconds are actions anyone might take in this situation. Keep that in mind when listening to Officer Keller's statement. He says, quote, This guy was, to me, in a defensive position, had his arms crossed, and it didn't look like it was a friendly conversation with the suspect. A citizen had his arms crossed. Did not look like a comfortable situation. He was clearly targeting. His hand moved to his right pocket many times. As I was standing there, somebody came up to me and said the screwdriver's in his right pocket. As I'm watching him, he's targeting that. He's fidgeting with it. He's moved his hand there several times. It's the mind's subconscious, feeling for something that they know is there, adjusting it, and they don't even know they're doing it. It's a pre-attack indicator. As soon as he saw me coming, his hand was down by, I believe, down by his right pocket. He's in a bladed position. 
Here's where the report takes a turn from semi-impartial to heavily biased. The report pauses its recap of testimony to say, quote, At this point in the interview, Keller paused and appeared emotionally impacted, head down, wiping his nose and eyes with a tissue, end quote. I'm not saying this didn't happen, but there's only one possible way to interpret its inclusion in the report, to garner sympathy for Officer Keller. Officer Keller continues by saying, quote, I went to try to control him. His right side was free. His right hand went into his pocket. It came out. He tried stabbing me in the head or in that general area. I just remember turning away and then I let go of him when I saw the the plunging stab down towards me. I disengaged. He was, let's call it, he was running eastbound for a very brief time when I saw him. And then he turned and had the screwdriver in his hand. He began bouncing up and down, taking a fighting stance. And he moved toward me again. And he was bouncing up and down, had the screwdriver, started moving towards me again. I remember somebody on the side of the sidewalk He was facing me. The screwdriver was literally inches from a kid's head. He started to move towards me again in this fighting stance, and I shot him twice. End quote. Hearing the way Officer Keller describes people, knowing how much he uses force, knowing how many people he arrests, can he still be considered a reasonable officer? Notice the word choice and the similarities between Officer Keller and Detective Wheeler's statements. The fighting stance. The lunging. Attempting to stab. Another note, the two stabbing attempts mentioned by Detective Wheeler were conspicuously absent from his original statement. It was only after Officer Keller's statement became public that Detective Wheeler remembers these two separate stabbing and lunging instances which also differs from this account, given right after the shooting. He turns, he pulls the screwdriver out, he comes back over this way to the sidewalk, he turns on us, starts lunging and bringing us to, you know, telling us to come forward, he's lunging at us and fired two shots. So, in the immediate aftermath of the incident, there's no mention of stabbing, there's no mention of Detective Wheeler grabbing Stoney's arm, the screwdriver didn't appear until after Stoney spun out of Officer Keller's grasp, which is, unsurprisingly, precisely what the video shows. Officer Keller and Detective Wheeler have presented testimony that is false and misleading. Their statements don't hold up to the slightest amount of scrutiny. Video evidence directly contradicts them. Their statements do not align with any of the other evidence. Even Detective Wheeler's initial statement does not support this later claim. It's also interesting to note that none of the transcript excerpts in this report contain any language used in the case cert report of any officers, quote, fearing for their life, or fearing for anyone else's life. The report has a number of other errors and discrepancies in it, like the training course certification dates differing from document to document, 
Officer Keller's training was supposedly completed while he was on administrative leave after the shooting. And don't get me started on the witness statements they decided to include. From this report, there was only one policy violation issued. Detective Wheeler violated policy by not carrying his taser. After briefly scanning the Polsbo PD manual, I could come up with several other policy violations. Most importantly, Policy 300.3.1, Use of Force to Effect an Arrest, states, quote, An officer may use all means reasonably necessary to effect an arrest if, after notice of the intention to arrest the person, he or she either flees or forcibly resists. Officer Keller gave no notice of his intention to arrest Stoney. Polsbo PD Policy 300 states, Officers shall use only that amount of force that reasonably appears necessary given the facts and circumstances perceived by the officer at the time of the event to accomplish a legitimate law enforcement purpose. The reasonableness of force will be judged from the perspective of a reasonable officer on the scene at the time of the incident. Two reasonable officers judge the use of force applied by Officer Keller as not reasonable given the facts and circumstances at the time. Officer Keller violated policy 320.5.9, conduct, that states, quote, exceeding lawful peace officer powers by unreasonable, unlawful, or excessive conduct, end quote. Officer David Lom and Sergeant Valerie Now violated policy 410.9, required activation of video audio recording device, that states, members shall activate the portable recording device in several situations to include non-custodial contacts or field interviews, response, arrival, and investigations of in-progress calls for service. Officer Lom did not activate his body cam during the shooting. Sergeant Now did not activate her body cam during her interactions with the officers immediately following the shooting. But I think one of the more overlooked policy violations would be policy 300.9, use of force analysis, that says, quote, at least annually, the command staff should prepare an analysis report on use of force incidents. The report should be submitted to the chief of police. The report should include the identification of any trends in the use of force by members. I kept getting this nagging feeling about officers Lom and Sangil. Why were they so candid about their recollections? And why wasn't officer Lom cited for not turning on his body cam? Why would they talk so openly and honestly about the shooting? Then, while I was counting the officers employed by the Polsbo PD, I realized exactly why. David Lom and Nicholas Sangill no longer work for the Polsbo Police Department. Despite ample evidence of guilt, despite reasonable officers testifying to the contrary, despite clearly false testimony, despite common sense, Officer Keller was found to be within policy when he shot and killed Stonechild Chiefstick. My first experience with the justice system was when I was 15. I had been smoking weed with a couple friends. We got pulled over. An officer asked if I was high. Since I had nothing on me, I said, yeah. He wrote me a citation for possession of marijuana. You can get a ticket for at one time being in possession of marijuana? My friend who was with me said he wasn't high. A lie. 
He did not get a citation. What's the incentive to tell the truth? The current system of justice relies on honesty and integrity to enact just punishment. When you lie, you can get away with damn near anything. We're seeing that every day on the biggest scale. Liars win. My biggest takeaway from this look into the criminal justice system is that it's rotten. When there are no good faith actors in the system, it will fail. And failure is a win for them. There are no consequences for failure. Truth, on the other hand, demands introspection and a requirement to get better. This is the cycle we're stuck in now. If you don't admit mistakes, you cannot improve. Here we are doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. In May 2020, Seattle police killed two people. One was an unarmed man holding a baby. The officer told the man to stop. He stopped. Then the officer shot him. He simply shot him. That's it. The saying goes, shoot first, ask questions later. But this is far more sinister. This is shoot first, ask no questions, ever. It's funny to me how all these people, these elected officials and law enforcement, all came out to condemn the killing of George Floyd. Literally, at the same time, they're aiding and abetting the cover-up of their own law enforcement officers' crimes. It's hard for me to understand the disconnect they're seeing. There have been an abundance of sad moments throughout this process, but for me, one of the saddest came after this policy review was released. I started writing this episode and found myself looking up the definition of the word justice, because I wasn't sure I knew what it meant anymore. Stoney has been failed by every aspect of the criminal justice system and the elected people of Polsbo. Meanwhile, Officer Keller has emerged from this ordeal completely untouched by the system. The officials at Polsbo PD knew of his predilection for force. The city council and the mayor refused to recognize the problems of their town. The prosecutor won't hold officers to the standard of the law. Where is their shame? And when we have the death penalty in this country, it's for serious things. And it's not even for like molesting a child or something. It's for, you know, murdering people and dismembering people and doing really horrible things. So the police shouldn't be executing someone for, is this, you know, police report says for leering at people or staring creepily at someone. That's not a reason to kill someone. Why didn't they use a taser? I don't believe that justice will be served because justice would be having our friend here with us and having him be alive. So there's no way, to, you know, that's why this is so serious, because when you take someone's life, that's permanent. And he doesn't get to see, you know, his grandkids and his kids finish growing up. It's, it's absolutely tragic and heartbreaking and unnecessary. So I don't believe that there's going to be justice um, in this case. I know in Suquamish, you know, we feel really heartbroken over this. We feel the pain of his children and they talk about it you know how much they miss their dad and we try to be there and support them but there's no way we can replace their dad and you know we can't bring back the guy that was playing basketball with them and the other kids in the community um he's gone forever now and so what we can do is is try to honor his memory and try to bring justice for him
and um, for other people who are killed by the police. And I think that, that where they really, I mean, as much as they seriously messed up with the choices, and while, it's, while it may not have been racially driven, it may have been any number of other things, the lack of transparency and the lack of um, an attempt at retraining or discipline made the situation look even uglier than it needed to or it made the situation look just as ugly as it needed to. And neither of those things is okay. Uh, justice in this case would be some remedy that does not allow these officers, like so many officers in Western Washington or America, to escape the repercussions of the decisions they made on the night of July 3rd, 2019. And hopefully that justice for Stonechild Chief Sticks family will result in the next life being saved or spared from by law enforcement rather than being lost at the hands of law enforcement. I think that that would involve probably in this case, you know, training for the officers, critical incident training. It would involve an approach to law enforcement from the level of supervision to level of policy making that takes these situations and takes a de-escalation approach as opposed to rushing in and being scared and making a bad decision, which appears what happened here. Well, it's important to recognize that officers make mistakes. Our police officers are by and large undertrained and unqualified for the job that they are tasked to perform by local government. Mistakes happen, but just societies admit mistakes and learn from mistakes. They do not cover up mistakes and hide from the consequences of mistakes. And what we are seeing throughout our society and throughout Western Washington is that our system of government is designed to not atone for the mistakes made by law enforcement, but to hide those mistakes. And hiding those mistakes only leads to the next person being killed by the police. I think that without having the, the truth out, without having the facts available to the public, with the sort of broad defenses available, like qualified immunity, like the uh, felonious conduct statute, uh, or these cases don't even get to a jury. There's no testimony to figure out what exactly happened, and there's no fact finder to evaluate that testimony. Uh, it's just going to keep happening. We need to educate ourselves about the law and the idea of um, plausible deniability. The idea that if one police officer has the um, inclination to join the force or to use this law that they learn about, they learn about this self-defense law in police school, if just one police officer is inclined to use this law to commit a homicide against someone of a different race or a different sexual orientation or a different class, that danger of that one officer is enough that the law should be changed to guard against that. And I think that it requires the public to educate themselves about the law 
about the possibility of plausible deniability. And once done, they should talk to, regularly contact, um, in this case, the Attorney General to consider doing another pass on investigating that case, broadening the investigation. And I think that they should talk to their legislators about changing the law to take away any possibility of free defense or plausible deniability. I think that human life is is worth that much. I think once the police start valuing lives, I think others will begin to value lives as well. Um, I think that, you know, shootings amongst community members will decrease. I think that we have to show that human life is valuable and the authorities are the ones who need to first demonstrate that. Children live what they learn. So if they see that folks are being valued in the community, then I think that, you know, they'll start to realize the importance of doing that. Why there's so much rage happening in the country right now is because You know, cities are trying to stop it by saying, oh, we'll charge the officers with more. We're going to ban chokeholds. But this is a systematic racism problem. And the fact that we invest more and more in police instead of job programs, free child care, after school programs, poverty programs, more food banks. Like these are the things that we need to eradicate the problems in society. But instead, we're turning police into, you know, the military and coming at our own communities like that. And every day we're looking at new video of cops abusing people while we're protesting police abuse. You know, it's it's ironic in the worst way. And it's it's not going to just happen, you know, with Sony's case or any individual George Floyd's case, any individual case, it's going to have to be real um, systematic change and that is not going to be an easy thing to do and it's going to you know it's going to cost money and it's going to take will and I think it's going to take people confronting what white supremacy is and how ingrained it is in our culture and it's not what people um, may view as racism that it's a lot more insidious and um, built into our society than we realize I think Craig Keller had you know, a dozen different ways he could have handled that situation. I think the use of illegal force should not have ever been the first thing that he did. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, that's just going to continue the cycle of violence as how we solve our social problems. You know, I just think, I think it shows the reality of the society we live in. And I think for everyone who's, you know, happy to sit back and be blind to the truth of the injustices that are happening around us. I mean, it's, it's hard. It's hard to keep showing up and expecting better and then seeing the same thing happen, seeing people killed, seeing people discriminated against, seeing people unfairly imprisoned, people marginalized. But we have a responsibility. And for all the rhetoric that comes out, especially in Kitsap County, of people feeling like these self-congratulatory progressives, you know, people all across Western Washington standing up against Trump, standing up in the Women's March, and yet turning their backs when something in their own backyard is so unjust to me, it's just irreconcilable. There is no excuse 
for not being outraged about this. Their child was a member of this community. He was so loved. He was a father to so many wonderful children. He did not deserve to die. And if we can't reconcile with why he's dead and why Craig Keller is walking free and what that says about the world that we're living in, then I don't know what kind of people we are and I don't know how we can continue to wake up and go about our day each life without having anything but just shame. To erase a people, to say that they're not human, has been the way of the government since day one, since their landing, to erase us and make us a footnote in a book and that nobody would stand with us. Nobody would care about our lives being lost. And we need to change that. We need to stand together and become strong. And I see the people becoming strong. I see them coming together as one. We're all coming together to say we deserve to not have the police beat our bodies as black people and kill us. We deserve to have the police not beat our bodies and kill us as indigenous people. We deserve respect. We deserve equity. We deserve justice. This case is not over. As the prosecutor says, there's no statute of limitations on murder. I'm still searching for even more evidence to support criminal charges being filed in this case. Go to stonechildpodcast.com support for ways you can help. If you want to hear more, go to patreon.com slash for additional interviews and other content that I couldn't fit into the podcast. Finally, this project was a massive undertaking that came together with the help of so many people. Investigate West's Robert McClure helped me get started writing records requests, and I owe him a tremendous amount of gratitude. There were other real reporters I spoke to that helped guide me through some of these complicated processes and over some emotional hurdles. Stan Jones and Linda Byron, thank you. Thanks to the lawyers who took my phone calls and responded to my emails. Each one of you was courteous and patient. Thanks to Wake Up Bainbridge for helping spread the word. Thanks to Ahmed for doing the voiceover on the video. Thank you to Stoney's family and the people of Suquamish for letting me tell this story. And of course, thanks to my family and friends who helped foster my curiosity and deal with the ramifications of it. Most of all, thank you to all the listeners. Because listening is exactly what we need to do right now. <laughs>